Hello, my name is Declan Deneen, welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode a guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another. Games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. I'm very excited to welcome Richard Garriott to the show, um, sometimes known as Lord British. Uh, I mean, it's really hard to list the sort of things that Richard has done because it's kind of, it's so extraordinary. Like, you know, he he designed Ultima, you know, the video game connection. He invented MMOs pretty much, or at least sort of defined what we've come to know them as. The term Avatar, you know, like that's a thing from his games. Uh, also, he's a second-generation astronaut. Um, he's, he self-funded his own trip into space. Um, he's also visited the Titanic at the bottom of the ocean. And uh, as we were chatting, when we were just getting to know each other a little bit, he mentioned that he was uh, planning an expedition to the North Pole in a few weeks. So, you know, I mean, we didn't have a huge amount to talk about, but I managed to scrape together a half-decent uh, interview from him <laughs> over the course of the show. Honestly, it was brilliant. We had a very tight hour um but I think we managed to get through quite a lot of stuff, um, and I think I think you'll really enjoy it. I certainly did. I mean, what a thrill! What an absolute thrill! It's uh, it's GDC week uh, this week. This show drops on the Monday of GDC week. Um, if 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 you happen to be at GDC, I hope you have an excellent time. I hope you get the most out of it. Um, for those who are just kind of interested in GDC, I mean, I don't know, is that a thing people are interested in? They're more interested in the games on the show. But anyway, um, if you dig back into the archives, uh, I recorded an interview with Chris Crawford. I think it's episode 18. Um, the very first GDC was uh, in Chris Crawford's living room. He he created it. Um, and it's uh, he's also another extraordinary chap. Uh, and we had an excellent interview. Also, this week sees the end of the Indie Train Jam, which rattled across America before coming to a rest at GDC. Um, if you want to hear more about that, I interviewed Adriel Wallach, who is the creator and founder of the, the Train Jam. We had an amazing chat about her, her life in games and how the, the idea of the Train Jam started and you know how it's kind of grown over the years. I'm um, very excited to see all the, the, the projects and people come off the back of that. It's, a, it's an excellent thing. Do check out if you uh, if you don't know much about it. Um, if you'd like to get in touch with the show for whatever reason, please feel free to email. It's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com or it's at checkpointshow on Twitter or it's checkpointspodcast on Facebook. It's very important to have consistent branding. Um, if you enjoy the show, please do tell a friend, a rate and review on iTunes. I can't stress enough how much that helps kind of find a new audience. If you really love the show, um, there's a Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash checkpoints. Any and all donations are very gratefully received and go back into making the show as good as it possibly can be. Now, that isn't necessarily a subscription either. Like if you just want to chuck in a couple of quid, like the, the price of a, a beer or a coffee to sort of say thanks for the show and you know all the episodes that you enjoy, um, that'd be awesome. Um, don't feel bad if you don't. It's fine. I wanted to listen to the show. That's why I made it. I'm not doing it for you. <laughs> that's that sounded really aggressively bitter. It's really not. I, I absolutely love doing the show. It's a, an absolute privilege because I get to talk to amazing people like Richard Garriott. So uh, as always, I'll be back next week with a new episode and a new guest. But for now, let's get on with the show. So I'll do a, a formal introduction for the sake of ceremony. So um, Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for, for coming on. I'm very excited to talk. Um, if you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? Absolutely. Well, and first of all, let me say also, it's a pleasure to be with you here this morning. So, Thanks so uh, much. Uh, yeah, but uh, I'm Richard Garriott, and uh, to gamers, some may know me as Lord British, uh, which is the nom de plume that I have used since my early career, and I'm uh, one of the uh, the kind way to say it would be longest tenured or oldest might be a less uh, <laughs> not nice way to say it. Uh, get developers of video games. I go back all the way to the 1970s, back to paper tape spools on teletypes, and uh, have had a, a you know a, a really great you know 40 year plus uh, run making computer games. 
and and you're still at it as well which is one of the things i find most interesting like especially considering your your raft of really kind of spectacular uh, kind of side interests let's say <laughs> like visiting the titanic or going into space um yes exactly. or going to the north pole or going to the north around. pole exactly in a few weeks um <laughs> what is it about about games that you know like i guess like for thinking about it from my perspective as someone who has hasn't been to space or done any of these kind of wild adventures that's kind of i think that's a thing people get from games that's that's an element that people can get from games so what is it is it about games that kind of keeps you interested in in making them despite i i i'm assuming you don't really have to if you don't want to Right. Well, the well to me, these are inextricably linked. I mean, I in fact, shameless plug here. But last year, I released no, a, a book called Escape. Uh, excuse me, called Explore and Create. And uh, and the the whole point of the book is to show that this linkage between you know j- just like people, as you mentioned, often are inspired into this sense of wonder that they discover through games. Well, I believe the same thing is true of discovering the reality in which we live. And I think that by being an explorer of the reality in which we live, and, and I mean that very broadly, I mean not only the geographic exploration, but also exploring science and exploring philosophy and exploring yeah. you know, mathematics, uh, that, that's what you know, inspires me and also gives me frames of reference to try to pass on that, uh, uh, that uh, inspiration in games. And so I don't think I could do... The kind of games that I do, uh, or at least the, my, I know that my approach to making games is informed g- deeply by my exploration. So I, I find them linked. And uh, So I guess kind of like following on from that, is there, I mean, I, I think you've probably just answered it, but are there other kind of genres of games? Because a lot of your games are, are deal with very similar things. They are, they are adventures. They are worlds to explore and stories to discover like have you ever felt the kind of desire to go off and do something like radically different like a different genre of game yeah well you know what's interesting is um well as a player as a gamer i uh, you know and, and uh, i i play a wide diversity of games that are not necessarily the kind that i make on the other hand though as a creator i am definitely inspired to create you know, broadly speaking, virtual worlds, and I don't mean VR worlds, I mean, you know, uh, reality crafting uh, worlds for in, to inspire people. Now, in my mind, those could be science fiction or fantasy or anything else, but I am inspired to, you know, create these deep uh, story-based, uh, highly uh, detailed interactive worlds for people to go explore. So, uh, uh, dis- despite the fact that as a gamer, I actually don't play that kind of game that much, and and I'm you know, and I've tried to wrestle with why is it I'm not more of a fantasy role playing game player. Uh, Maybe because you get your kicks I, in real in the real world, you know, you 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 have literal actual life and death adventures in it, some cases. Could, that could be a factor too, and uh, but you know what, I do play a lot of my competitors' games, but I play them usually to kind of study them and break them down and see what they do well and see yeah. what I can learn from them. Uh, I don't usually, I'm not usually, you know, compelled to live in their world, uh, in the same way that I hope I'm creating a world that people are compelled to live in. Absolutely. Well, well, let's, let's trace this back then, um, Richard. So if you can uh, remember, what was your very first experience of a video game? Well, yeah, you know, uh, I'm sure the first video game that I saw was the original television connected Pong game that my parents, you know, hooked up to our console television our big crt tube in the middle of the family room yeah but the first proper computer game that i played um would have been uh, a, a variation of a, of a net trek you know one of these uh old schoolers will remember that uh, even on uh, teletypes and uh, very early uh, crt displays there was a a star trek style game where you had a top-down, text-based little map of a sector of space, and you could move your uh, starship around on the map and shoot lasers or photon torpedoes at uh, at others that might move into the space. But it was a turn-based uh, strategy game that at least emulated the concept of you know fighting Klingons in the yeah. Star Trek universe. Uh, that uh, that was pretty compelling. 
Uh, and right on the heels of that, I would see things like uh, uh, text adventures, like the original Zork and the original Adventure, uh, and, uh, uh, and and another really early one called Hunt the Wumpus. Uh, that was also one of the first ones I managed to uh, read how to code and typed it in myself. And so I could not only play it, but began to see that these were things that you could make. Yeah, I'm, I'm always interested in that, in, in like at what point, because um, I speak to a lot of developers, obviously, that at what point they discover that games are a thing that a human makes and they aren't some otherworldly thing. Because certainly, like, I'm not involved in, in games at all, really. I'm a writer, but it didn't occur to me until well into my teens that, oh, no, these are actual, these are crafted things. They were just, I guess I'd never really thought about it before. So for you, that happened at quite a, a young age. Was there any particular reason f- for that? Was it, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming there's, you're surrounded by a lot of scientists since your dad is an astronaut, so maybe that was part uh, of it. That is, that's natural to, to, yeah, I'm sure there was some of the exposure that, that absolutely came from that. But for, for me, the break point came because if you look at these very earliest machines, I mean, there, there was no, there was literally no software you could go buy on the store of a, uh, the wall of a store. Yeah. Uh, almost all of these things were you either, you took a spool of paper tape that somebody else had printed out for you themselves <laughs> or a stack of Fortran cards. Um, or, or when you turn the machine on, it had no programming in it at all. And you typed it in yourself. And after you turned it off, it would go away again. So each time you played it, you had to type in the game and, uh, and in the case of this Hunt the Wumpus game, that's basically, you know, how it operated, at least for me originally, is, you know, the entire game is only maybe 30 lines of code, 40 lines of code, something like that. And so they would print it in magazines. And so the storage medium was the printed page of the magazine. And so you could type in this little program and you could run this little Hunt the Wumpus game. And usually you'd have to debug it a little bit, which also talks a little bit about, 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 about programming. And almost immediately you would go like, oh, I, I can see, I just typed it in. I know exactly how it's operating on the interior, on the internals. And you go, that is really clever. And you realize you could change the print statement to print out different words. And you realized, wow, if I just, I could change in, uh, you know, a, a line of the code here and change how the game worked, make it harder, make it easier, or, you know, destroy it <laughs> in some way. Um, <laughs> And, and so very quickly, uh, you know, I, in, in my case, you, it was easy. It was not only easy, but almost necessary to move from being a pure consumer to being uh, part of the creative side or the creation side. That's amazing. And the thing that, that most kind of that, that occurred to me most when you were explaining that was how just that, that, that timing is just so perfect for like a curious kid who's interested in you know, it will ultimately go on to, to essentially kind of change the world of games over the course of their life. You kind of, you started when programs were simple enough that you you literally had to code it yourself to play the game. And then sort of your kind of, as you got older, the technology would move on at just, you just right. in that perfect kind of window of cresting that no, wave I, of technology. Well, in fact, it's interesting to to note that because, you know, I was, you know, between the ages of 15 and 19 when I was going through this initial exposure and kind of going through this transformation bef- from finding computers to being a, a self-published uh, game author. And, uh, but during that period, you know, uh, when, I, when I published my first game, I was 19 years old. And at that point, I was one of the very first people to ever publish a game, sort of by definition. And... When I turned 20 years old, some more people came into the games business who generally were about 19 years old. And thus it continued year after year after year, where as more people got in, they tended to be younger than me. And so for pretty much my whole career, I've been the oldest person or one of the oldest people <laughs> in the entire gaming industry. And now, of course, I'm 57 years old. So there's now actually there's some, you know, some weight to that, that uh, age. But, uh, uh, but, but, but literally that, that kind of concept of there's really not older peers above me to look to and study, you know, has been true my whole career. Uh, and it's just an interesting, interesting aspect of timing. It's so, it's so fascinating, especially because like, you know, as I said, like the technology would grow with you. So, you know, the, the more ideas you would have, it would almost be like the technology would just catch up and you'd be like, okay, I can do this now. And it may not be in retrospect like the best version of that but it was certainly the yep. first version of that and 
because you were there first, that is allows you to iterate and you know give give birth to, to new genres essentially. Like, did you exactly. did you get a and sense so that, of that at the time though when you were doing it? Oh, not at not at the very beginning. What's interesting is is it took me until about Ultima three before I kind of had a sense of that. And and it, and here's how that kind of happened. You know, if you look at my very first published game, which was called A Calabath, it's sort of really Ultima Zero, and then Ultima One and Ultima Two and Ultima Three. Um, you know, A Calabath was written in Basic, but with never intending anybody to play it. Uh, it just somebody somebody saw it and said, "Wow, you should publish that." So I did. And then I said, after that, I said, "Well, you know, if, if I was actually making a game to be played by someone other than myself, I could do a much better job." So that's when I wrote <laughs> Ultima. And then after I wrote Ultima, I said. Well, if I real if I wrote the game in assembly language, I could cram a lot more into this little eight bit computer. Let me write Ultima two, and then after I finished Ultima two, I said, "Wow, that was the very first ever assembly language programming I ever did." So the coding really it was it was more powerful than Basic, but the code wasn't written very well because it was my first time out. And so let me start over again with Ultima three, and so all the way through Ultima three. I basically threw out everything I had done previously to start over from scratch and really do what I felt was technically a much better, much more capable game. And what's interesting is each Ultima outsold its predecessor substantially. Well, if you look at a lot of my early competition, and these would be games like Wizardry, Bard's Tale, Might and Magic, and those sorts of also yeah. early games, um, a lot of them... When they had a successful first version, their first version actually might have outsold the first Ultima. But the way they would make their second version is they would sort of just strip out the monsters, strip out the dungeon design, maybe drop in a new set of monsters and dungeon design. But they didn't rewrite their engine. And so the people who bought and enjoyed Wizardry 2 tended to be a subset of the people that had already bought and enjoyed Wizardry 1. And so... Well, a lot of my competitors either had flat or decreasing sales game to game. I had increasing sales game to game. And at first, I mean, it wasn't a plan. It wasn't a marketing plan. Yeah, no, I was just thinking. It was just, it was just what I felt I needed to do to make an even better game. And, uh, uh, and the result was better sales. And, uh, and so after that, I went, oh, okay, I get this. I better do this on purpose. You know, I better <laughs> codify this into my strategy. What I'm interested in, like talking of you know creating Ultima, and you you are kind of credited with kind of giving birth to, to certain genres of video game. Uh, what I find interesting about that is because usually when I talk to guests, the, the idea or one of the ideas I'm trying to to think about is how the the games people played when they were younger kind of influenced the games they created. As someone coming in to make a new genre, so to speak, like what what were your inspirations what were the things driving you to make the type of games that you did are there games that oh, stand sure. out to you yeah oh definitely and um uh in my case there were some very clear you know outside of gaming immediate influences as well as i can then describe some inside of gaming uh, all, uh kind of follow-on influences um you know the same year as i started to learn how to program on a teletype the, that exact you know within a month of the same moment my sister-in-law gave me a copy of The Lord of the Rings, or I think more specifically The Hobbit, uh, to read, which I was the first fantasy I had ever read and you know, was ver became a voracious consumer of. And that was the same year as the publication of the game Dungeons and & Dragons. And uh, so I was, I was literally what in the first... What a confluence of ideas. Yeah, the, so I was in the first, you know, the first summer of Dungeons & Dragons. I was in that first group of adopters to pick up that game and start playing it. And so very naturally, medieval fantasy, gaming, and computers came together. And so my first games immediately became sort of, you know, role-playing games. In fact, I used to call them. I was so inspired by D&D. These were before I could ever publish them, of course. I was just writing them for myself on a teletype, and they were just called D&D1, followed by D&D2, D&D3, D&D4, <laughs> all the way up through 28. So in, in high school, I wrote 28 teletype games. In fact, I've got them sitting on the floor here behind me. The notebooks I wrote them all in um, uh, are uh, just sitting here uh, as uh, uh, I would uh, you know, write these games over and over and over again. Then, in 1979, the Apple II came out. Uh, or actually, I guess in 77 or so it came out. But in, by 79, I, I had purchased my own with uh, my father. And 
Uh, and I saw another uh, one of the earliest games to use this newfangled video display was a little game called Escape. And all this game Escape did is it would draw a maze. It would let you watch the drawing of a maze, kind of in a top-down. You just kind of watch a tunnel being bored into a, a you know, cube. Okay. And then it would drop you into the cube, and you had to find your way out. You had to escape the, uh, the maze. And that was it. You just walked through a maze to get out. But you walked to it in sort of this low-res, blocky, 3D-like perspective. And immediately I said, this program was small. I could op open it up and look at it, and I realized... I can make 3D probably better than I'm looking at and attach it to my role-playing games. And I can actually now let you go into the worlds that I'm creating uh, in a way that you, I could not have done previously on those text-based teletypes that I had previously been working on. And so that's what started Akalabeth, is I sat down with my mother, to, who's an artist, to dissect uh, how to do perspective view graphics. I sat down with my dad to figure out how to do some of the math after my mom's geometry. Uh, I dissected this game Escape to figure out how to make mazes and, and approach the, the rendering of 3D graphics. And Akalabath is not only one of the first published role-playing games, it might be the first published role-playing game, uh, but it's also definitely the first 3D role-playing game. And, uh, and it goes on, for, obviously, from there. And, and you touch on some of these firsts. You know, not only was I around for the you know, first games at all, First role-playing games, first 3D in a game, uh, but you know the uh, the word avatar comes from Ultima, that you know the very popular term now, but uh, it really spawns out of the Ultima series. Uh, the whole genre of massively multiplayer games, MMORPGs, that, that term and that category comes from Ultima, uh, and even really weird terminology. You know these things like the tile graphics that that I use, that of course is now you know quite common for 2D uh, maps. Uh, and all the way down to this uh, esoteric term that only hardcore folks will remember. But there's something called shards. If you have databases that are copied or duplicated, even in the database industry that has nothing to do with games, those two duplicate databases are called shards of each other, kind of splinters of each other. And uh, that is a term that comes from the fiction of Ultima when we made <laughs> Ultima Online, uh, when we wanted to have multiple server sets with identical worlds that now even the server industry uses. So being first lets you not only innovate, but can I even come up with standard nomenclature? You That's know, amazing. One of the things that, that really struck me there when you were describing um, making your first game was the, the fact that it was it was almost like a little sort of family business that you know you, you, your parents were helping you build this new new thing. Like in in a kind of broader kind of societal sense, like did you find? Um, as a young man, that like, did you did you make friends through games? Did did it feel like a kind of a very niche thing? Like, clearly, your family are very supportive, but were you did you feel like a, some kind of outsider, like a nerd, like the classic thing, or, or was it just this is my interest and I'm going to forge ahead with it? I, I don't really well, bother with that. Yeah, a couple things there. One is this was definitely back in the time where nerds were social outcasts at school, and I definitely was a nerd, so I was on the socially outcast side where. You know, as you know, now ner nerds rule the world and everybody wants to be a nerd. And, you know, uh, it's it's hilarious that, you know, even all the jocks in school want to be nerds. So, you know, every, everybody's a nerd now and nerds are very, uh, you know, positive, positively thought of term, uh, but not so much when I was a kid. And but uh, but uh, on the same side, though, even when this was quite niche, the people, the, the enthusiasts around it were hardcore you know, there were, while I, while I couldn't go to very many, if any, places to buy games, because they didn't, you know, the infrastructure of, you know, <laughs> stores to buy these things didn't exist really yet. There already were kind of swap meets where people would get together and go like, hey, I found this new NetTrek program that I typed in out of a magazine or made my own version of. And here I've got it on paper tape or printout and I'll give you a copy or, uh, you know, and, and piracy of the software that did exist was of course rampant uh and it, and it, not only just because people wanted to pirate it to save having to spend the money but frankly you couldn't spend the money you couldn't find a place to buy it they really it just didn't exist and so you know i still have uh, you know at a box at my office i have all the very earliest software that i was using as both as a player and as a creator and you know 80 percent of it was pirated just because there, there really was no other way to see it and um uh and that happened at these kind of, you know, now people have LAN parties or other things where they get together and, you know, game in the same room at a, uh, you know, at a PC shop or with their friend's house. 
bringing the computers. But that's sort of the way it started also, is, uh, because that was really the only way to share stuff. The other day, there was no internet, of course. And did you have a sense, though, that it was like this is going to be huge like this is going to be a whole new medium like did it feel like uh, an exciting new sort of frontier or was it just you know you're pursuing well, your interests and who cares if it's, no, it's it just did, something i love no it did feel like it was a real market uh although by the way the scale of it even from the beginning was much bigger than i would have imagined and it got bigger and bigger and bigger quickly and the the race the the rate of its growth was shocking and, and unexpected, and in fact, the family attitude, as supportive as my family was, there you know uh, I remember you know I, I I both published my first game and went to college in the same year, and uh, and within a year and a half of that, I made the decision to drop out of school, and and that's because as my income level was going up my grade point average was going down and I failed a programming class, which is of course what I was doing for a living. And, uh, and this was sort of a, Hmm, you know, one of these things has got to go. School has got to go or making games on the side has to go. And it was pretty obvious to myself and my family that, you know, the games are the things you should do right now. But, you know, my, my father's attitude, as I remember was, you know, Hey Richard, of course you should drop out of school to go do this full time. But, when the windfall of this thing comes to an end, you know, which surely will be within a, you know, a couple of years, well, then you can go back to school, finish your degree, and get a real job. Yeah, this is going to be a, a trend that's going to run out pretty soon. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and of course, it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's still getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So, you know, so, so surprise, surprise. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I never did get that degree. And, uh, uh, you know, and you mentioned this family business, you know, my, my parents were investors in that first when I quit school and my brother and I started to start a company, my parents became investors and uh, the, obviously they did very well for them. And with the money they earned out of being my partners in the gaming industry, they went and went to their hometown in a little place called Enid, Oklahoma, and they built this phenomenal uh, children's uh, science and art education center. And, oh, amazing. Uh, that's still going gangbusters. and. Uh, you know, so, uh, so, 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 you know, we've all, we've done well and hopefully done good with, uh, the success we had in that first company. That's, that's, that's wonderful. Um, I, I just, to, I'm going to stick with game because I want to talk about some other things first, but to carry on with the, the games thread. So as you said, it, it got, the industry got bigger and faster much sooner than you realized. Were you still finding time to, to, to play as many games as you could and were there games that kind of maybe shifted you shifted the way you would develop games in the future like that changed your perspective on perhaps what games could be yes now what's interesting about me as a gamer is you know i game a lot i mean the number of hours that i game is uh, actually gone up over the years I'm, I'm more of a gamer now in the sense of time put in than i probably have been any other time in my life strangely um but it's interesting i go back and i, I can tell you the pivotal games i've played i i I can I find a game that is, you know, truly inspiring to me both as a player and maybe as a creator only about once every year or two, and and so I go through these lulls of of being a gamer and then I jump back in, and so for example the first and and the and the way I measure a really great game in my own mind is if I play it to completion, uh, and so the first game I played to completion that I was not involved in creating was uh, the game Mist. And I had a profound reaction to Mist. You know, this is again well before the internet. Uh, I, you know, it's a not only a fantastically beautiful game, but incredibly clever uh, game design, extremely well integrated uh, audio and little video clips, uh, and it was put together in a way that was so unlike any other game before it that I was just compelled to stick with it and try to finish it. Although it was hard enough, yeah. and that I had to coordinate with other friends who were playing with it, and use the literal telephone and walk over to their house method of getting clues uh, in order to finally finish it. But it's the first game I finished I didn't work on, uh, and then there was a bit of a lull again. And I'll get some of these out of order, but there were games like the original Command and Conquer is another one of my favorites. Oh, and so good. The, the original uh, 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 RTS uh, of uh, also, uh, uh, Warcraft uh, was a, a, a big favorite. Uh, the original 
Uh, Medal of Honor was a huge favorite. The original Battlefield 1942 was a huge favorite. Um, and so you can see already, even just by that list, you know, whether it's an RTS or a first person shooter or an adventure game, you know, I find one or the other inspirational, you know, down off and on down through the years. Interestingly, if you now go through my last five years worth of inspiration or the games I play the most, they're actually all on mobile. And that's really for among other things. So, so I'm sitting here in front of a PC now talking to you and I do all my work on the PC and I play lots of PC games. But the ones that I put the most hours into are the ones that I can sit on the bus or lie in bed or wherever else I'm sitting in a taxi, whatever it might be, and continue to play. And so uh, those are games like I'm a huge fan of of Monument Valley, uh, a a, a very simple all-text game called uh, A Dark Room. Uh, uh, These days, um, you know, well over level 30 on Pokemon Go. And uh, (laughs) and I even play a ton of... Of, of of old school board games now rewritten on mobile like uh, Stratego and Monopoly and uh, you know just uh, some of the classics um, and so uh, but so I still put a lot of a lot of time in you know screen time so to speak but it's barely yeah. although by the way the, the, the probably the role playing game I've played the most time in is Worlds of Warcraft which I think is a brilliant game uh, and what's interesting is it is simultaneously something I find very inspiring in the sense of it is a, the, the, the level grind of world of Warcraft, how the challenge and reward cycle is so finely tuned and how well level gated content is, is something that as I look at it, I, I, I can see my own addictive behavior, you know, being trapped <laughs> by it and being inspired by it. But I simultaneously realize I not only, not only can I not do that, that's, I don't have the skill to make that, but it's also not what I'm inspired to make. It's not. It's not the. It's not creating the sense of awe, uh, or or uh, or or, or uh, shocking, uh, unexpected results that I like to put into my own games. And so I'm in, I'm inspired by it and admire of it. But I, you know, but I but I but I don't feel sad that I don't make it because it's just it's just not the what my what I'm inspired to do. That's I find that particularly um, interesting, but purely in, in in terms of the scope of the the type of games that that you make. Um, but I, I'm very conscious of the time, so I am going to take a brief second while sure. we're still talking about games uh, to do uh, some some relatively quick fire questions. Is that okay? Right. Okay. Yeah, so, um, Richard, if you had to play a game with death for your own mortal soul, what game are you best at? Yikes. Uh... Uh, that, you know, I, 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 I am, I'm, I fear I might not survive this (laughs) session with death, uh, because I, it's, I'm hard pressed to think of very many games that I can really dominate at. Um, you know, there was a time I thought I was really great at command and conquer and, and until I quit playing with other employees of my own company and played the general public and realized how bad I was. (laughs) Um, and so if, uh, I know this was supposed to be quick fire, but, uh, you know, no, I, okay. I'd have to say I'm, I'm pretty good at Stratego these days because I've been playing it a lot. So, uh, you know, I, that, that's th- that's probably the one I'd have to face death with today. That's good. That, that, that's that's quite cinematic as well. I enjoy that. Um, are you just in general? Are you a particularly competitive um, player of games? Like, have you ever been locked in a particularly fierce high score battle or, or board game battle of wits? Well, you know, I would go back uh, to uh, one I was mentioning earlier, Command and Conquer, and go, you know, when w- one of the things I really loved about Command and Conquer, compared to any real-time strategy game since, honestly, is that it really did, I really did at least believe, as I was learning it, that the people I would play with, uh, you know, they would, you know, you, you would learn a strategy that you thought was uh, p- pretty dominant, until someone else figured out a new type of strategy, a new approach to the game that would beat the strategy you had deployed. And then you would have to go off and, and think about it hard and, and you know, you eventually develop a strategy that could, could, it could master that. And so we would go around, the, the group of us that were playing together, all gaining in skill at about the same rate. You know, uh, not only did the, the who was dominant trade off you know, week to week, uh, but our total skill level went up and up over time. Uh, and that's when I said we then, after we thought we were really just great masters of this game, we decided to open up and play it with people outside of our own company and realize that other people had been much <laughs> faster on the uptake, obviously, than we had. 
and uh, we we found ourselves owned by all the young kids on the internet. Um, <laughs> but that still is that still is the time I felt the most competitive, and you know, really in the competition, and really you know, like a you know an athlete at a, you know preparing for uh, sporting events. I mean, really felt that we were getting better and honing our skills and working hard to to get better. I, I'm always fascinated. Like when I originally started the the podcast, and I've spoken to like 116, 117 people now. I was uh, one of my worries was that I would kind of people would have similar games that they'd hit over their lives, like the, the similar seminal games, just because of the nature of the industry. And there were a few kind of I had in my head that people would often mention things like like Pac Man or Space Invaders or Pong or Zelda and Super Mario. And I'd never, one of the most consistent that I'd never would have thought of is Command and Conquer. That, that seems to be such a, a pivotal game for so many people. Um, and it's, it's, it's oddly kind of, I'm not going to say it's, it's misremembered because that's not true or, or that it's kind of forgotten. But it's just not one of those kind of games that people put in the, that same category, I think. But I think it definitely is. Uh, it's very No, good. I think so too. And well, what I think is interesting about it is, you know, of course, Command and Conquer then was followed up by a number of sequels as any great game is. Uh, and 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 play alikes both from the same company and others, and so they've had titles in that same genre that are actually more popular. Uh, like what there's sort of a space themed one that the name of which is eluding me at the moment that became particularly popular in Asia, even at some of these PC bangs and stuff. But uh, so they've had games in the genre that were far more popular, but I actually don't think they've been better. And uh, and it may just because I have a fondness for the first one, but. Uh, but I think a lot of the real-time strategies games since then have sort of become construction speed races. You know, if you have the fastest fingers and mice, you can, you know, develop your defenses faster than your neighbor and the fastest yeah. mouse wins. It's more of a skill and, game than a strategy game suddenly. Right, exactly. And so I'm going, it kind of, it's kind of missed it to me. It's, not, it's no longer a chess game. Uh, it's a race. And, uh, you know, and not being the youngest kid on the block, you know, you're not into the race. You want to you want to make sure that your old age and treachery can win out. <laughs> and, uh, and, you Absolutely. know, Command and Conquer was great at that in a way that few other games have uh, attempted successfully since. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, just to sorry, go back to the quick ones briefly. Um, if you are prone to such things, um, Richard, what was or what has been your worst rage quit? Oh, you know, I, I'm I'm gonna have to put something uh, old school hat on here too, and go back to the era of uh, uh, again some of the early fantasy role playing games. I, I'm not sure if I should blame Wizardry or uh, Bard's Tale for this, but in those earliest games, uh, you know, save games were a luxury, and computers tended to crash even more than they do today. And, uh, and so for me, the biggest rage quit was not associated with, you know, the specific loss of a character or, you know, getting upset that I hadn't achieved a goal. It was because of the technical failures of hardware. And, uh, uh, I, I remember very distinctly back in those days where, you know, you put in, you know, an all nighter, you'd put it literally an all night binge in playing your favorite role playing game. Uh, you'd be, be the wee hours of the morning, you'd finally reach the next plateau, and there'd be a hiccup on the hardware, and your save state was lost. And so basically, the entire all-nighter you just pulled had been, had been forgotten. <laughs> and, and, and that's one of those things where you just go, you know, screw it, I'm out of here. You throw up your hands and just say, that's it, I'm never touching this game again in my life. And, uh, uh, but fortunately, that was, that, that was, you know, that was in the 80s, so I think my, my last rage quit was uh, back in the 80s with one of my early competitors' role-playing games. Well, that's good. That's good. I'm, gl I'm glad that you're more temperate now. And the, the yeah. hardware doesn't fail you as much, thankfully. <laughs> um, is there a game that you, you go to that is kind of, would be the equivalent to like a chicken soup, like a game you go to for comfort? Yeah, I do. You know, it's a it's a it's a strange one on uh, uh, mobile these days. But there's a, a, a relatively little known game called The Creeps, and it is a tower defense game on uh, mobile uh, that was written some years ago, and has enough play modes or scorekeeping methods that even though I've been playing it for ten years, uh, I there are still 
kind of ways I can set it up to try to set a new 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 personal best, so to speak, in some yeah. area of the game. And so uh, I always go back to it. Whenever I'm just needing to decompress from the day, I'll turn on the creeps. I'll scan through where all my personal bests sit and find one that I think I'm up to trying to push up a notch. And then I'll sit down there and do it repeatedly until I move my personal best up a notch. And uh, uh, And so I've been moving my personal best up a notch in that game for literally a decade uh, and still have plenty of headroom to go. Amazing. I need to check that out. I do love a good tower defense game. Um, is there, given the kind of the, the breadth of, of emotions that games are able to convey, uh, one of the rarest uh, I, I still find is laughter. So I try and ask everybody, Richard, what games have really made you laugh? Oh, that's a good question. Uh because like you say, it's, it, is, it is truly rare. It is, mm-hmm. it is hard for games to make you feel anything other than fear and excitement, to be honest. And so uh, uh, I'm trying to think if I can even really remember. I know I have laughed at a couple points in games. There's a couple of King's Quest that I've laughed at. But I don't even remember what the event was that was happening. Oh, 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 in fact, uh, it was um, not Day of the Tentacle. Oh, yeah. What is the pirate-themed one? Monkey Island. Monkey Island, there you go. Yeah, so Monk, that was it. That would have to be it. Uh, in fact, that wasn't just one laugh. That was a bunch of laughs. That is one um, of the most common answers, answers to that yeah, question. But, so that, but, that, that's, but that is about it. There is so, it is so rare to see good humor in a game. Uh, and you know, not only do most people just not attempt it, but the few attempts that are made are usually fall completely flat. Yeah. Um, There's but, a lot of inadvertent uh, laughs with like glitches and things. Yeah, exactly. And Unintended laughs. shenanigans, but uh, exactly. Not. Yeah, Leroy Jenkins. Well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, there's a few. There's two. I mean, there's so much I, I could talk to you about, Richard. But there's two things I'd really like to hit on that 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 struck me. Um, I'm going to try and sort of tangentially relate them to games uh, because this is a video game podcast, after all. Uh, the first one is uh, an interest that we both share. That I, I discovered, which I hope is correct, is that. Uh, you're into magic, and, and I, I'm a magician as well. I have been a magician. Oh, that is so true. I am, I am indeed. In fact, I, I always have uh, tricks in my pockets, even right this exact moment. What tricks uh, do you have in your pocket? Yeah. Uh, uh, well, I, uh, I don't want to say the name of it so people don't Google it, uh, but I have an ESP die in my pocket. Okay. Uh, that uh, uh, that I can set out on a table, uh, let other people uh, s- select symbols, and I can read their minds to find them. Uh, I uh, and also in that same pocket, I have uh, 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 my pet spider. Uh, I don't know if you know this particular one, but it actually works with your phone too. It's a way you can lay your phone on top of somebody's hand. Yes. And oh, I do know this. Then yes, it appears there is a spider uh, crawling on their hand, and when they turn their hand over, there's in fact a spider there, uh, actually crawling on their hand, which gets a good gets a good yell. <laughs> uh, I have some loops in my wallet, which you probably know what are. I do, yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, let's see, what else do I have in my You're pocket right now? Oh, than, than me. And I, there's a. I have. Uh, I have some. Uh, this sort of is tipping it a little bit here, even to describe it. But I, I can pull out a wad of money and uh and determine the let you select freely the uh, bill that you would like out of the wad and all money has unique serial numbers and i can uh, uh suss out the serial numbers uh that you have on the bill that you select and so where did this is this just been a kind of a, a background interest throughout your life magic or was there a specific thing because one, one of the things i'm interested in is is the sort of connection between uh, magic and video games which i think is it's a not commonly linked but i think there's a lot of very intrinsic ideas to them, them both that kind of feedback on each other i think there is too and i, th- I think uh magic um, music uh, video games go together very well, and I'm going to even include one more, even more obscure thing, which is automatons. Yes, and, absolutely. And, and I'm going to connect magic to games through automatons, which is why I mention it. So I have a few thousand automata. A few thousands. A few thousand. Uh, I have the basement level of my home is set up as a big display area for automata, uh, with shelves and shelves and shelves of automata, and. Uh, 
and I have them from, you know, the early Greek stuff through the Victorian periods all the way through modern pieces. And I'm, I even make some pieces. I was actually at a friend's house last night working on some automata. And, uh, and the thing I like about automata that I first encountered about in the 1980s, actually in, um, in London, uh, a place called uh, Cabaret Mechanical Theater. And uh, is that if you know, if you, if you look at a piece of gaming code, you know, from that first net track and things that I saw at the very beginning. Yeah. You know, there, there's not that, you know, a, a CPU of a computer is really pretty simple at its core. It loads from memory, can store in memory, and then when it has things inside its accumulators, it can basically, you know, add and subtract and multiply. And that's about it. Uh, you know, anything else that it does is a very, you know, incredibly large stack of those first simple, you know, uh, statements. And when you look at an automaton, it's sort of the same thing, right? It's a, a gear and a pulley and a lever. And uh, everything is really just a more and more complex interplay of these these simple basic concepts. And it's an amplification and, as well. It's like simple in and then like magical output, essentially. Exactly right. And so when I first discovered, you know, the uh, I tend to be a collector of mechanical magic uh, versus I am not, I don't have the patience and therefore skill to be a card mechanic or uh, work with coins or other things. I tend to work with props. And, uh, and my admiration for those props is those same kind of clever mechanics. Like I'm sure you've, you've seen more than your share of finger choppers. Absolutely. And, and I actually enjoy, I have a collection of finger choppers just because I enjoy <laughs> looking at the incredibly clever mechanical slights that people put into these things to, you know, to make it really appear like your fingers getting chopped off. And, and uh, even with my kids who, uh, you know, I sit down and they go through the finger choppers themselves and they're, they're just fascinated by, you know, how can this, you know, really be happening even when they kind of do it on their, on themselves, you know, uh, to try to really understand what's going on here. And so I just think your 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 appreciation of the majesty and magic of the reality we live in goes up when you ponder magic. Absolutely. Um, well, talking about kind of uh, appreciating the majesty and wonder of the world we live in, I, I have to talk to you about going to space, Richard, because I can't imagine I'll, I'll speak to many people about who have, who have visited <laughs> the space station. Um, so, and I'm sure you've talked about this a lot, but just like to briefly talk about your like, where did this interest come from and, and how did it finally pay off? And, you know, what was it like? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think that most people, at least at some stage of their young lives, you know, think about being an astronaut and a policeman and the fireman and a few of these traditional things. It's definitely fine for me. Uh, but, but in my case, you know, my dad's an astronaut. And so I, uh, uh, you know, at, at the very least, it's easier to believe that it's practical course um although i know lots of other children of astronauts and the majority of them did not choose to also try to become an astronaut uh, in fact i don't know of any others uh and my brothers and sisters didn't and so i don't think it's you know a foregone conclusion that it will remain high on your list uh after you get a little older but in my case there was a very pivotal moment where one of the nasa doctors who was giving me an eye test realized i was going to need glasses and made a comment to me where he basically said Hey, Richard, I hate to be the one to break it to you, but because you need glasses, you are no longer eligible to be an astronaut. And I was crushed. And how old are you at this point? This, I was about 13 years old. Uh, it was just a year or two before my discovery of computers. Um, I was, but I took it as being sort of kicked out of the club that my parents, my neighbors, and basically everybody who lived around NASA was a part of this whole this grand human voyage to space. Everyone else gets to still be a part of it, but not me. And I was like, well, who are you to be the gatekeeper of space? You know, if, if, if I can't go by this doctor's rules, I'm going to have to build my own space agency and take myself. And of course, at the age of 13, you don't do much about that. But as soon as I started making money in the games industry, which was only two years later, uh, I immediately began to invest in commercial space endeavors with the expressed intent to get myself into space one day. And it took 30 years beyond that, but I never relented. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, while I've had, you know, investment planners, et cetera, who've invested money in the, you know, wherever they thought was best to put some money for me, any money that I put somewhere myself has always been towards getting myself into space. And, uh, uh, and, 
and so you know it 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 like I said, it's going to be thirty years and a number of failed attempts. Uh, and Why do you think the desire was so strong, though? Was it just was it purely because you were told you couldn't, and therefore I, like I I'm that really young, is. I'm starting to make money when I'm young, and so I'm just gonna yeah. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do this. That's it. That's it. I just was like I I was just like screw that. I'm going. You don't tell me what I can't do. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, yeah, I was, I, was just I was just relentless. But that's also what, you know, the, the, the people that I met with or built companies with that eventually took me to space, we, we built companies to go do a bunch of other amazing stuff. You know, take nuclear icebreakers to the North Pole, take submarines down to the, uh, the deepest places of the ocean, including the Titanic and hydrothermal vents. Go deep into the interior of Antarctica on meteorite hunting expeditions, and you know uh, all kinds of other places that that I've gone with, and/or formed, uh, you know, companies or helped form companies, supported companies uh, that do these really extreme travel things that ultimately led us to build the companies that broke up in commercial spaceflight, which allowed me to go. That's amazing. I mean, I, I do feel like that that seems to be a a kind of common trend that a kind of a, a bold scientific or exploration endeavor often you know through its very nature is going to create other useful things like the classic example is you know cern in in europe which the internet is a byproduct of searching for the higgs boson essentially like that's a wonderful thing like uh, this creation of the world we live in and so like how i mean um what kept you so steadfast because as you said there was there was a lot of setbacks along the way like was there never a point where you were like oh you know this is I don't need to do this. That's fine. Uh, no, you know the way I look at setbacks is that there's two there's two kinds of setbacks. You know, if you if you come up against something and you go, "Wow, that's really impossible," well, then it would be stupid to try again, right? If, if you if you conclude <laughs> that there's really no way to do it, then you you'd be smart to give up. However, much more commonly, what you when when a failure occurs or when you run into a block you can't get past. What you really learn is uh, you learn a new block. You learn you you've discovered an unexpected block. I mean, you had a strategy that you thought was going to work, and you found out why that strategy didn't work. But very commonly, for me, is you then go back and you rethink it and go like, okay, if that strategy didn't work, is do I do I know of another strategy that would end run that particular failure? And in my case, uh, I can just I know I I very quickly realized I could get past that failure. So like for example, the first companies. I would invest behind were generally people companies founded by ex NASA people like my dad and my dad's friends who are astronauts and these people like seem super smart and they are astronauts and they know this very well so they ought to be good people if you're going to make your first bets in space they'd be a good pick of course but what you learn is they're not very good entrepreneurs they're astronauts and they really don't understand what it would take to finance or get government approval or frankly move the government move Congress to allow commercial space. I mean, they're, they're not prepared for that. And so it turns out they're actually really bad people to invest in for commercial space. It would be my argument. Um, so then he said, okay, I need to go find this, you know, a more set of independent, like-minded uh, entrepreneurs, which I ultimately did. And that's actually what ultimately worked. But the, the next big setback actually came because I had actually arranged for the, to be the first private citizen ever to fly into space when the 2000 internet stock market crashed. And all of my net worth was tied up in internet stocks. And therefore, I actually had to sell that first seat to a guy named Dennis Tito. Um, then I had to build a whole other company, sell another company, finally put down the money in 2007 to go in 2008. And if you remember, in 2008, another nice. giant market <laughs> crash happened. And so here I am trying to pay for my trip to space while my net worth is rapidly approaching zero. Uh, and they found another problem, which is I had a medical disqualification condition. I actually have one lobe of my liver was missing a vein, which on the earth is irrelevant, but in space could cause internal bleeding. And so they actually kicked me off the flight and said, you can't go oh, after man. taking my money. And finally we convinced them that if I went and had major life threatening surgery and removed that lobe of my liver, that they would let me go. And so ultimately, that's what they did. I finished making the payments. I basically went broke in the 2008 crash, but I made it to space. That's incredible. Like, one of my favorite things about that, and just purely because I can tie it back into video games, is this, 
the way you describe that is you were kind of min-maxing your voyage into space. You right. were going That's through true. your strategies and figuring out the best way of doing it. You are applying a game mechanic to, to your life and achieving this goal. Um, absolutely true. Absolutely extraordinary. And so, like, I mean, it seems like such a trivial question to be like, what was it like? But what was it like, Richard? Like, was it, well, was it yeah, as incredible as you imagined? Yeah, and it, well, of, of course, it's a phenomenal experience. But but what's interesting is that it's it's, ph- it's phenomenal in so many unexpected ways. Frankly, the training is astounding. You know, to work with the cutting edge space technology and a you know the tens of thousands of people it takes to put one person to space. You know, being at the tip of that spear, so to speak, is a phenomenal uh, experience just to go through. You know, but of course, you know, nothing beats the morning you wake up, don a spacesuit, climb, walk over to a fully fueled rocket that is creaking and groaning and condensation streaming down the sides of it and climb up and strap yourself in and light that sucker up and, you know, scream off the surface of the earth, uh, you know, but for only about eight and a half minutes before, you know, you burnt all of the fuel and the giant rocket has now gone away. And you are floating in space, traveling 17,000 miles an hour, orbiting the Earth every hour and a half, only 250 miles up. So you still get a phenomenally great view, you know, seeing how all the large scale systems work from an amazing vantage point, whether it's erosion by wind or water or pollution or clear cutting of the rainforests or terraforming like over the... uh, Palm Islands in Dubai or how we terraform deserts to grow food and slowly run out of fossil water underneath them. And, uh, you know, you just you sort of feel like your knowledge of the earth and its systems and human impact on them just is going up just by looking out the window. And then finally, of course, you know, you you disembark the space station, you uh, slow down just a tiny bit and that's enough to make you fall out of orbit and you you fall back in the atmosphere, which immediately creates uh, a friction that uh, a blast furnace really that begins to melt the vehicle around you as you watch it melting out the window around you uh, and uh, then finally you know parachutes deploy and in the case of a Russian Soyuz that I was in you impact on the surface of the earth so you don't land in water you land on the land and so it, it, it the finale is a, a major car crash thud back onto the uh, surface of the earth so I mean it is it's phenomenal at every moment you might say that's that's amazing um and i'm going to follow up what, what i feel was a trivial question within with a perhaps even more trivial question but uh, just to sort of close it out because i want to try and tie it back into games is there any kind of game that can offer any kind of sensation similar to that like what game does space best if you could well you know what's interesting is um you know, my friend Chris Roberts with the Wing Commander series does space pretty darn well. But what's also, though, interesting is that, uh, uh, you know, all these things that I see is amazingly inspirational. I could give you, if we had more time, I'd give you another one about Antarctica, about how awe, awe-inspiring that is. But I actually think that it's what I at least don't do or don't try to do is to recreate those things in a game. And the reason why is because I think it would not be successful. You know, the hour I spent configuring the rocket before launch was an amazingly great hour of my life. However, it would be really boring in a game. And even the eight and a half minute fiery ride into space, which of course was a pinnacle life experience, would be really boring in a game. Uh, and, and so I think it's really important to separate the what caused the awe and then what can I do to, to create something similar? And so, for example, I would argue that uh, in a game, that, that for me, what, ins- what, what space and Antarctica inspiring games is this work to achieve a vista that the vista then provides you something much more profound than you anticipated. And so it can literally be in a game you're traversing the world, you have to climb some mountains, you make it slippery and the path to inobvious and maybe require some jumping and maybe some grappling hooks and maybe you have to fall and take some damage and maybe there's some monsters trying to stop you, but you're slowly working up the front of face of this mountain. That once you get to the top of it, when you look over, it's important not to just see a valley and trees, etc. You need to make it a moment, like I'll use, a, a, my kids were just watching the cruds, uh, the crudes the other day, and you know, in a 
a cave wall falls down and opens up and they reveal instead of the dark, dirty, rocky terrain they've been on, they're now in a lush garden of Eden full of color. And so you have to make sure that when you cross over that moment, that what can I give you at that? What can I, what can I pay you off with that provides you this sense of unexpected awe and wonder where you know it's still dirt and land and trees, but it's assembled in a way that, that you know, feels like a profound payoff. And so, you know, so I, so I take my inspiration not from the literal, but from the figurative that's that's a beautiful sentiment i think that that seems like a, a lovely place to to finish on as well um but before we close up i just wanted to say if there's anything that kind of hasn't come up that you wanted to mention please take this opportunity now or if you wanted to let people know where they can find you and find your games on the internet please do that also absolutely well thanks well i think we've covered the topics quite well but uh you know i'm uh uh, you know, my favorite form of mass communication uh, with players is Twitter. You can find me at Richard Garriott, just my at my at my name, uh, and uh, and of course I've got a new game launching here just in a couple of weeks. Shroud of the Avatar, uh, kind of the spiritual successor to Ultima, uh, is coming out. We're launching it officially at South by Southwest uh, in the first couple of weeks of March, cool. and the version that launches at the end of March will be the first public uh, release, Episode One. Are you excited for this? Are you excited about that? We are. Of course we are. You know, it takes years to make a game these days. So by the time Absolutely. you get to this point, uh, you're both excited and in fear uh, because online games, of course, that's when the work really starts. So yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, it, the, the more successful we are, the more problems we're going to have. Do you still enjoy <laughs> it, though? This is the key part for me. Oh, yes, of course. Absolutely. I'm, uh, I, that, that's still, you know, uh, if I wasn't getting paid, I'd still be doing this. <laughs> well, brilliant. Thanks so much, Richard. That was, uh, that was a real pleasure. Thanks for taking the, the time. Was that okay for you? Absolutely. My, my pleasure. Thank you.